How you doing? Unpleasantly surprised, I can tell. We've got to change the order of things. I cannot follow cute people. That's a horrible disadvantage. Ushers, thanks for your help. Uh, wait for just a moment before you pass the baskets. I wanted to just uh, let you know, first of all, that Anna and I got to take a trip recently. We were in Nashville, and we got to take Jared and Ali Faye and Mabel Rose Evers out for dinner. Some of you know that Jared was a former a worship pastor here, and he's involved in uh, developing his music uh, career and calling in Nashville now. Uh, we don't get to see the Evers enough. They're a part of our boomerang family, but uh, they don't always uh, boomerang back to us in the summer because of the distance, but uh, they send you their love and uh, greetings. Uh, as we uh, give in just a moment, we, we do this here at Evergreen. We talk sometimes about if you've come today prepared to give, and uh, I want to let you know what prepared means. It comes right out of Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 16.2. He says this, on the first day of every week... I want each of you to set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So we call it PREP, P-R-E-P. It's be planned, set it aside, be regular, it's habitual, everyone, <laughs> that means each of us, and P is for proportional to your income. I, I want to do this today because I have noticed that it's really awkward for people in the front two rows to push the basket passed and not have anything in it, and it gets back to some of you and you say, I wonder why those people never give up there. Well, they give online or they give on the app or they, you know, they give by bill pay, but all of us prep to give in one of these ways. Thank you for your faithful giving today as the ushers pass the baskets by. Well, I get to play the second quarter today with you in our series in the book of Colossians. Last week, Anne launched us in talking about Elevate Jesus. Today, I get to talk about Elevate Relationships. And next week, I get to have some fun with you on Father's Day in talking about Elevating Family. Well, you know, what we've discovered, and what I'm gonna talk about today as I focus on relationships, has to do with toxic religion. Have you noticed that there's some religious people that can really mess with you <laughs> and really mess you up? I mean, they're, they're just bad for you when they do things in the name of God. We've all been there. And Jesus had to deal with those kinds of people all the time. In fact, when Jesus was walking on earth, there were two toxic religious parties, both well-intended, both really screwed up. There were, on the one hand, the Sadducees. They were kind of the left-wing, liberal, don't believe in the soul, don't believe in heaven. Uh, they were the liberal theologians of the day. And then there were the Pharisees. They were kind of the right-wing, conservative, make rules and regulations, put those on you, and then they were self-appointed law enforcement. Which of those would you like to live with? Yeah, Jesus had the same conclusion. He didn't have a lot to do with either of them. But he did have some fairly scathing things to say about legalists. As a matter of fact, if you want to read more about that, in Matthew chapter 23 has a list of seven condemnations about toxic religious people and ideas. If I ever do a talk out of that passage, I'm going to call it, What Really Ticks God Off? He really bothers Jesus when people get in the way. You've discovered some religious people do far more harm than good. Anne mentioned, and you'll probably hear more about it because it really was a transformational experience for us, but uh, for about a week, we just immersed ourselves in a part of our country that we weren't familiar with, and 
a period of history from 1945 to 1955. Some of you, like us, lived in at least part of that era. And one of the, one of the just dramatic, heart-wrenching discoveries and realizations was that much of the church of Jesus was co-opted by Christian dumb and was way on the wrong side of the struggles that were going on at that time. Of course, there were vibrant Christian believers that were very engaged. I think Jesus would be engaged. But I got to just say, the church, part of the church, really stunk it up. And that's not unique to that region or that place. That's an experience of life that we all have. We all tend to pollute the beautiful gospel of Jesus with other things, which is why Paul writes this 30 years after Jesus walked on earth to a church at Colossae and to their sister community of, of uh, Laodicea. And he says to them, I want to tell you about Jesus and I want to tell you about people that are messing with you. And so last week, Anne launched us with this beautiful picture of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He is actually the fullness of the Godhead in human form. If you see Jesus, you've really got it right. And now he's going to turn our attention toward what that means to us and then the kinds of people we want to avoid being and that we want to avoid. They were being severely attacked by false teachers that were trying to mess with them. And so this is what we read in Colossians chapter two. Let's start with verse one, it says, I want you to know that how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they would be encouraged in their heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So after painting this gorgeous picture of Jesus in chapter one, now he's beginning to paint a beautiful picture of you in chapter two. And he says, first of all, I want you to know that when I look at you, I see these four characteristics. You are encouraged, you're united, you're understanding, you are firm. You're encouraged in your hearts, you're united in love for one another, you're understanding who God is and who you are in Christ, and you are firm in your faith. My question for you today is, could you benefit from a little more of one or more of those? Maybe you'd say, you know, I'm a little discouraged today. Or, you know, there's some things that I'm feeling a little distanced from or a little lonely about and not sure that I'm belonging. Or maybe, you know, I don't understand. I'm kind of confused or I'm feeling that my like is a little bit shaky right now. There's more. Notice as we read on verse six, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And see to it that no one takes you captive by that through a hollow or deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the 
elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. Look at this. There's four more qualities as he's painting this portrait of who you are in Jesus. And he says, you are rooted. You are strong. You're just exploding with thankfulness. And you're not captivated. You are absolutely free. And just like those knives they sell at 1 a.m. in the morning on TV, but wait, there's more. And we read on in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, but your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Phew, I can just get worn out reading what he wrote. It's amazing. Pause for just a minute. Paul is saying, and uh, he uses this horribly graphic and uh, for some of us just kind of, you know, pain-inducing idea of male circumcision. And he's talking about this ancient Jewish rite, which demonstrated, marked the Jewish males that they were God-fearing Jewish people. And he's referring to that ancient custom and he's saying that had legitimacy in terms of being symbolic but the substance of the symbol has come in Christ. And now not only is a portion of your body affected, but your entire body, your entire being, your essence, and all of your own flawed nature has been completely set aside to God. In fact, in this surgery, you've actually been baptized, dunked into Jesus, dead with him, and made back a life in the resurrection of the dead, everything is new. And many men say, thank God, I like that a lot. Yeah. By the way, we talk about your next best steps here at Evergreen. And if you are coming to faith in Jesus today, your next best step is to go, when I'm done, please, out to the lobby to Info Central and, uh, and get some information about being baptized and be baptized in water here next Sunday. If you follow Jesus for 50 years and you haven't been baptized in water, your next best step is to go to Info Central. Get some information about that and join us. I know it could be awkward. You could say, well, I've been saved for a long time and what are people gonna think about me? It's like, oh, he finally got saved. Well, that's a good thing, Margaret, you know? No, what we're gonna think about you is we're proud of you, good for you. We celebrate you. Here it is, new life in Christ. And he continues in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away. He's nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. And you just want to say something macho at that point, don't you? Yeah. You don't? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Just checking. It's 11 o'clock crowd here. Yeah. So I want you to write this down. As you've put the final strokes into this sketch of who God says you are, you are alive. You're forgiven. You are uncondemned. You are liberated. Now leave those words up for a moment. 
because Paul is about to shift and go in another direction and is about to tell the story, which is the antithesis of this story. This is God's story about you. This is God's picture of you. When your life is full in Christ, you are. You are encouraged, you're united, you're understanding, you're firm, you're rooted, you're strong, you're thankful, you're free, you're alive, you're forgiven, you are uncondemned, you are liberated. This is who God says you are in Christ. Your life is complete in Christ. Wow. But now this chapter pivots and it moves to a different but very related subject because these good folks at Colossae had come to intellectually believe the truth about what God says about them in Jesus. But boy, in their experience, they were hearing some very different stories about how life should be lived. Paul addresses this religious mess. There were agitators that were trying to put guilt and regulations and laws on them. And the agitator's goal was to make these free Christians who were already fully qualified in Christ to feel like somehow they're unqualified to participate in Christ. And their, their spiel evoked doubt and it led to religion in rather than pursuing a relationship with Jesus. And Paul uses, I'm going to give you a heads up of four words. He uses these words to describe the message of the other picture that was being painted for the folks at Colossae. Deceptive, captive, condemned, and disqualified. As this image suggests, all of us have background noise that's going on, static, self-talk. Some of those words come from parents, from step-parents, from teachers, from pastors, from other significant adults, from siblings, former or present spouses that have said things to us about our identity. I'm going to leave that image there as I read these next verses. And while the next verses are very rich in their historical and cultural context, we're not going to flesh each of those ideas out other than this generalization that it talks about some things that you would be familiar with as worldviews or philosophies or religious rites, some other things that will be less familiar. But for our purposes today, this, the specific definition of what I'm about to read was thoroughly understood by the folks in Colossae, but it may be that we hear a little different words that play the next chapter in the same condemning book. But hear what they heard 2,000 years ago. Paul says, therefore, I don't want you to let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or to a new moon or a celebration of a Sabbath day because these things are a mere shadow of the things that were to come. And the reality, however, is found in Christ. So don't let anyone who delights with false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for such a person. No, they go into great detail about what they've seen, and they're all puffed up with idle notions of their unspiritual mind. 
But they've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and its sinews grows as Christ causes it to grow. Listen, since you have died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Like, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Don't you know that these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom, all with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Wow. Do you hear the heart of this elder brother who's coming along to say, I'm pleading with you. Don't listen to these voices that tear you down. See, the real message is that Christianity was never intended to be a religion. It was intended to be a community of people who were growing in their relationship with God. Yet from the time that Jesus walked on earth until now, people have in every generation tried to add rules to the relationship. And they take the purity of the good news and gospel of Christ and they pollute it with poison toxins. Imagine for a moment that I had two uh, beautiful, clear water glasses here and a nice clear pitcher of ice water. Maybe it even has a little bit of lime in it. Not cucumber, mind you. When God made cucumbers, he expected you to make them into pickles. Yeah, but this beautiful ice water. In fact, you pour it in to each of the glasses and leave about an inch at the top, and you are thirsty. You want this refreshing, pure, wonderful, life-giving, nutritious water. And I offer you one. Which one would you take? Probably the one that's closest, right? But what if before I offered you the water, I came with a small clot of dirt in one hand and some loose dirt in the other, and I dumped them in and I stirred it up together, and you heard that this horrible, mucky mess, and then I offered you both glasses of water. Which one would you take? Probably the unpolluted one. Paul is saying to the church at Colossae, you started out beautiful and pure, the pure gospel, but Toxic religion has made it polluted, and the result of that is anything but helpful and healthy for you. Every generation of us fights the human tendency to pollute the good gospel. And when you have stumbled in to toxic religion, you have stumbled into first religion that focuses on the externals rather than the internal. And you have stumbled into, secondly, a religion that while focusing on the externals causes instead of internal transformation, internal spiritual and religious pride. You know that the outside rules just don't work that well. I, uh, one of the rules that I grew up with as a kid was don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who... Yeah, some of you were there. We were in the same church, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I just decided as a young adult to do a little bit of research about both my family and my spiritual heritage. And I discovered that just two generations before my father, my forebears actually grew, cured, 
and chewed their own tobacco. Just want you to know. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not suggesting here uh, the relative benefits or harm of, uh, of tobacco or jewel. I'm just wanting to poke a little bit of fun at the nature of religious rules. They tend to change over time. But are we ever certain about what they are at any point in time? Religious focuses on the externals, but it, interests in, in, it produces internal pride. And Christians with internal pride are an awful lot like a piece of food that's been left out way too many days. It spoils, it's nasty, it's ruined, and it stinks. You know, recently I've been asking myself the question, am I persecuted for being a Christian? Uh, theoretically, I should be because Jesus said, if you truly follow me, you're persecuted. So I want to go on record as saying, yeah, I must be then. But practically, it's pretty hard for me to come up with ways I'm being persecuted. But I'll tell you, because I occasionally listen to the information from a wonderful organization called the Voice of the Martyrs that monitor the experience of Christians around the world. Trust me, there are people, Christians in many places who are being desperately persecuted. What do I primarily experience when people push back on me for being a Christian? I'm not sure at all it's for the purity of the gospel and for the love of Jesus or the message of Christ. I think it's because I stink from time to time. I mean, let's think about it this way. If we, in our own sense of spiritual pride, end up finding that we can't even be unified together as a family, why would I ever want to join an organization that tends to be judgmental and closed and can't even get along with itself? That actually makes sense for me. I think Paul is addressing that as he talks about these people. Listen, it's simply this. Toxic religion adds rules and regulations onto the free gift of God through a relationship with Jesus. Let me say it this way in these three phrases. Religion is Christ plus anything. The gospel is Christ plus nothing. And the full work of the cross is everything. Now, some of you are about to say, Jared, I know, I know this is the gospel, but, you know, if people really believe all this grace stuff, then they're going to end up just living any old stinking way. Now, come back next week, because we're going to go to chapter 3, and Paul does talk about some behavioral, some attitudinal, and some lifestyle stuff. But notice that he talks about it from the point of view of inward transformation, not from external rules. We need to have a little bit of fun. And uh, I love to talk about my heritage and my past. And you know how grateful I am for my family, for my faith, and for the churches that I was raised in. But I also poke fun of myself and of some of my history. And you're going to, I think, enjoy this. Because the church I grew up in had some really well-defined rules. Would you like to hear them? Here we go. Yeah. Number one, you will attend all four weekly services you will let us know in advance if you have to go on vacation. But at those services, there will be no hand clapping or raising hands. Got it. Music is to be limited to traditional Christian hymns. No instruments, Marley. They don't show up in the New Testament until heaven. There'll be a trumpet there, but that's probably it. Hope God doesn't have tambourines. By the way, King James Version only, yeah. Uh, pastors must wear a white shirt, a uh, very conservative tie, and a cheap dark suit. 
Women, we have lots of rules for women. Women are to be silent in the services except singing. Mm -hmm. And by the way, no makeup, no cutting of your hair. For all of you, no jewelry, including wedding bands, except watches. No going to movies, games, or theatrical performances. No card games. No TV. This explains a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) But I love the last rule the most. No dancing, even if it's line dancing in PE. So I want you to know that I don't dance. And I've come by it religiously. And I've made an effort a time or two and people have just kind of quietly come up and said, can I give you a little feedback? Why don't you bless humanity by not trying anymore? So I'm sticking with it religiously too. There we go. So we kind of poke fun and we have some fun, but here's the deal. I'm living today, not then. It's just as easy for me as an adult to form my own set of rules and regulations and pollute the gospel. I'm also equally prone to put those on you and to make judgments about you for uh, regarding them more than myself. You know, it's very easy for me to mix church and state and politics into a toxic bomb and to throw it your way. It's very easy for me to have attitudes and behaviors and speech that causes the other to feel not belonging and apart. Oh, I get it. I understand that just a little bit of toxic religion will quickly mess up your attitude, your friendships, even your marriage. 2,000 years after Jesus encounters the Pharisees, Phariseeism is still alive and well. In fact, I think most of us carry a little bit of it. And we probably also carry some of the religion of the Colossae Church because it is our tendency. And I need to take a careful look at my attitudes and my heart as I move forward with Jesus. So I want to finally today, this third section, do what the Apostle Paul did for the Church of Colossae, which is to make it explicit and to apply in their context what it might look like for us to experience toxic religion. And I think you'll probably find some people in the list, and most of us will find ourselves there as well. The first of the five traits, it's this. Traits of toxic religion include, number one, legalism. Legalistic people are far more concerned about the rules and the regulations than they are about people. And you know they're more concerned about observing those rituals than they are in helping people's needs. Legalism says that you can earn at least, at least part of your way to heaven. And legalism says God only smiles on you when you're getting it right, which means most of the time he's frowning. Legalism is not about relationship. It's first about the rules. You know, we all have a tendency to go there. How can you spot a legalistic Christian, by the way? I think it's pretty easy. Uh, They're the ones that are really easily offended. (laughs) In fact, I love an encounter with Jesus with a guy, a Pharisee. Uh, It's in Luke chapter 11, and I quote, it says, the Pharisee was shocked and somewhat offended when he saw that Jesus didn't wash up for meals. Can you imagine that? Jesus didn't wash his hands right. Easily offended. 
We do this. It's just us. One of the most respected leaders of the Christian church historically, and certainly of the Reformation and the end of the Middle Ages, was, uh, was John Calvin. And, and he, uh, he and other reformers were reacting to much of the practices and traditions and rituals of the Catholic Church. I understand that. But as they were leaving that and trying to come to a pure gospel place, they also had to figure out how to organize themselves. And John Calvin, because of his theological roots and beliefs, believed that they could craft a perfect society. And so that society had some rules. You'll enjoy them. It included how many dishes could be served at every meal. And there were laws against hunting. This would be a problem for some of you. And against hanging pictures on your wall. And my favorite law was that you could not name a child any name that was not found in the Old Testament. In fact, a parent was thrown in jail by the church because they named their kid Claude. Now, some of you would agree that that parent should be punished. <laughs> but the point is, we're all prone to this stuff, and legalism always moves you toward prison. The second toxic trait is hypocrisy. You know what it is. It's not acting the way you say you believe. You've got rules and tend to push them on everybody else and usually self-in-point as the rule keeper or the, the, the traffic cop. Being a hypocrite means you act in different ways with different people. So one way at church and one way on the way home and another way at the gym and another way with your kids and another way at work and another way in the small group. In fact, instead of being integrated, your life is disintegrated. And we never really know who you are or what you believe. A third thing that toxic religious people tend to do are, uh, are guilt trips. They are good at these, on everybody else especially. They love to make other people feel guilty. Their vocabulary often includes favorite words like should or must or have to or ought to. They're good at shaming, blaming, condemning. They're pros at loading guilt, including whenever you hear someone blaming their unhappiness on you. That's probably a toxic person. And so we've seen guilt trips and hypocrisy and legalism. And fourth, we find that there's, oh, you'll love this, Nitpicking. I hear some murmuring. Yeah, we're familiar with that one. <laughs> yeah. People love to find fault with others. These people rail against their favorite sin of the week. And you know they have an uncanny ability, even when you get like 96% of it right, to have figured out the 4% you got wrong, and to just pick and pick and pick away at that. Yeah, guilt trips. Hypocrisy, legalism. These people tend to be black or white thinkers. It's either all or nothing. It's either you're all good or you're all bad. Very little room for the grace that all of us need. Legalists, hypocrites, false guilt, nitpicking. And finally, well, there's those that malign motives. You know what this is like when your motives are being maligned. Now, I suggest that when other people malign your motives, that they have no idea what they're talking about. And this is my proof for that. 
I think that half the time, I don't know what my motives are when I do something. You don't either. We're really complex people, aren't we? So if you're asked the question, why did you do that? Which, by the way, is a, a favorite dumb question parents ask kids, right? Why did you do that? Well, I can come up with maybe one or two of the maybe major or more obvious factors, but we're complex. We have a whole variety of motives. It's hard for us to know ourselves. So when someone plays, when someone plays psychologist and says, I know why you did what you did, they're probably going to be inaccurate about that. Maligning motives. Why should you expect this to come? Well, it was a part of Jesus' everyday life. Even when Jesus did things, which by definition were perfect because he was, and they couldn't pick at the things he did, they picked at his motives. So they said things like, well, he did a good thing, but he did it with the wrong motive. Like the devil made him do it. Kind of lunacy, right? So if they, they really couldn't deny the miracles, thousands of people had seen them and not everybody could have been deluded. So they said, yeah, he did that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the, the guy's talking again and she came back to life and the guy's hand is working well again, but, but he did it for the wrong motives. They maligned Jesus' motives. Hmm. Well, look where Paul has taken us in this chapter. He's taken us from a place of saying, let me paint a picture of who God sees when he sees you. You are 100% in Christ. You shine. You sparkle. You're solid. You get it. You are growing. You are grateful. You are forgiven. You are liberated. And then he says to the church at Colossae, and he says to us, but everything else will fight the reality of that in your life. Your background, your tradition, your history, your own self-talk, and voices around you will say, if you really want to be spiritual, it has to be Christ plus. And generally, they'll tell you what the plus is. And Paul at the end says, I want you to come back to Jesus. And isn't that where we always come back to? Remember Jesus' words. He's the exact opposite of toxic religion. Instead of offering you legalism, Jesus says, you are free from the law. Instead of offering you hypocrisy, Jesus says, I am the truth. Instead of offering you a guilt trip, Jesus says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead of nitpicking, he says, you are complete in Christ. And instead of maligning your motives, he says, I know you heart, your heart, and even so, I love you desperately and unconditionally. That's the truth. So there's probably at least three kinds of people here today. Some of you are just on your way to faith in Jesus and you're checking out Christianity and Jesus and his claims. And you might be thinking to yourself right now, that sounds good, but I think it's too good to be true. 
And I want to suggest one of the reasons I think we as humans struggle with the free nature of God's gift. We really do think that it has to be a reciprocal relationship of equal value. I've got to at least do something, right? But your most precious relationships, isn't it true that you're in the relationship because you have received the other? I encourage you to let God's love be so big and so profound that he can actually offer you a 100% gift without having you tip. It's a free gift. Today, your next best step is to receive the gift. Sometimes we do that by talking and praying. In a moment, I'm going to lead a prayer, and I'm going to say some words that you can get in on if it, if it reflects how you're thinking and feeling, and it's going to be a prayer of receiving Christ's gift of forgiveness and new life. There's a second group among us, and it's those of us who are very familiar with those voices that play in the back of our brain. And some of us know where some of those have come from. And you're going to leave here today and you're going to say, I am beautiful in Jesus, but on your way home, you're going to say, but. And those old MP3 files are going to play again about why you are less qualified or disqualified. I'm going to give you an assignment this week. Your job, starting tomorrow for seven days, is to read chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians. Paul says this as he wrote to the Ephesians, I want you to be washed with the water of the word. God's word will just wash out the junk that is clogging up your system when it comes to how you misthink about how God thinks and feels about you. Just flush it out. The third group among us today are those like me, who even as I've been talking, have been reminded that I'm in the list of five. And if you find yourself there, and once again, I'm doing a little course correction, checking my own heart and motives, because I can just mess it up for other people so easily by making it Christ plus. I want to keep it simple this week. How about you? Would you stand? Let's pray, and then we'll sing. God, thank you for keeping it real, real as in terms of truth and real in terms of where we live, for intersecting our lives today right where we are with your word and your spirit. First of all, God, some of us are coming to get right with you, and what our heart says is, I receive you. I can't believe it's that simple but I believe enough to believe that you love me that much. I receive your forgiveness. I receive the life of your spirit. I receive your empowerment. And I come into Christ. Thank you for relationship with you, God. Some of us today, Lord, have been damaged by the polluted waters of others that have splashed toxic mud on our soul. And it has worn away and eroded the truth of the beauty and the completeness and the perfection of who you've called us to be. Lord, would you wash away the grime of that toxic waste? And would you heal the bruised and bleeding parts of our memory and of our thoughts and of our emotions? Would you heal us and restore us 
and make us whole and healthy into being people that see ourselves as you do. And then, Lord, for those of us who've been caught today in our own Phariseeism, oh God, would you give us the courage to just stomp it out, just turn the other way, just drop the judgments, take care of ourselves, be in tune with what you're doing in us and transforming us into your likeness and image and, and loving other people. Jesus, you said it so often and you said it so well that the big deal is to love God with all we've got and to love others as ourselves. Let that mark our week in Jesus' name. Would you say it together with me? Amen.